This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're on vacation this week, but we hope you'll enjoy this compilation of a couple of our favorite interviews from the PW Radio archives. Here are two science book authors, Alan Burdick on time and Ed Young on biology. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Alan Burdick on the line. His new book is Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. Hi, Alan. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you. So um, here's a here's a great softball, easy question for you. Tell us about our perception of time. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, when I started this book, which was a long time ago, I kind of felt like, oh, this is pretty, this is going to be kind of an easy thing to tackle. I don't know why I thought that. And and I started going around and um, asking scientists, you know, so like, what is time? And everybody turned it around on me and asked, well, what do you mean by time? And pretty quickly, I realized that, you know, kind of what we talk about as time is actually a lot of different things. There's, uh, you know, you're understanding of what time it is right now, but also your perception of before and after and your perception of past and present and future and your, you know, sense that there is some kind of a now that you inhabit. Your perception of time is, is this entire range of things. Um, and they they come online uh, at, at, at different times. You know, I mean, it, they come online gradually as you as you get older. You aren't, none of us are born with a complete perception of time in any sense. So I want to ask you a little bit about how we perceive time as we get uh, older or uh, as as infants. But I I, I, I love the uh, subtitle, A Mostly Scientific Investigation. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. What's what's the science and what isn't? What's the science and what's the mostly? Yeah, (laughs) what's Um, the mostly, exactly. uh, The the science is uh, me really delving into the question of... You know, I mean, I've, I've read a fair amount about space-time over the years. I mean, not like I could actually explain it uh, after all that. But, you know, I have begun to kind of wonder, what's the difference between space-time out there and what actually happens in my daily life? And, you know, my sense that the stoplight is lasting too long or, or whatever. You know, like, what's, what, what is time in here? You know, I just started going around and, and talking to biologists and psychologists and neuroscientists to try to get some grip on, you know, what this thing is that we call time. But at the same time, uh, the book really kind of spans my introduction to parenthood. I started this book just a few weeks before my kids, two uh, twin boys, were born, and they're now 10. Um, and there's, you know, I I spent a lot of that time. I have to say, really coming to grips with the fact that, um, well, I, I would say I guess I I spent a lot of that time 
you know, realizing that so much of parenthood, so much of becoming a a kid um, is your gradual introduction to what time is in its many forms. You know, it's like not just what time it is, but like, what do you mean? Wait five minutes. What's that? Um, You know, hurry up. Um, All these all these phrases that are just so common in our in our daily conversation that mean nothing to a kid until until you explain it to them. So I've I've got a one year old and uh, this is all a deep personal interest to me because um, like my kids only just starting to get linearity like the idea of when you're turning a page in a book there's a before page and an after page. And um, that feels to me like like one of the sort of prerequisite concepts to the idea of linear time of I will go and then I will come back. Yeah. And, and you know, it's you kind of think it's intuitive, like, a, of course. Um, but that that experience of before and after is actually a lot more plastic than you might think. I mean, I, I did this cool experiment in the laboratory of David Eagleman, a, a neuroscientist who's now at Stanford, and the setup was basically I'm in front of a computer screen and I've got a mouse in my hand and I'm moving a cursor on the screen and it, there's like a, a dot that lights up on a different part of the screen. Lights up, I move my cursor to it, click, and immediately the dot moves somewhere else and then I move over there and I click, right? So it's like click, move, click, move. Mm-hmm. Well, so in the setup to the experiment, there's actually a 100 millisecond delay between the click and the movement. And it turns out that the brain can actually absorb um, a tenth of a second, a hundred millisecond delay between an action and its consequence without you actually noticing the delay. So the setup for for the experiment is I get used to this hundred millisecond delay and I don't notice it, you know? I mean, that's a lot of time. And then suddenly he removes the delay. So there's no delay, I'm doing it instantly. And the weird thing is it suddenly feels like cursor is moving before I've clicked it. Wow. You know, the, the effect is coming before the cause. And it's so distinct that I, you know, I remember watching, you know, watching my cursor move on the screen and thinking, okay, I'm not going to click it now. I'm not going to click it. I was going to like, I was going to like flex with the experiment and you, I couldn't do it. It was really weird. So you were, but, you were trying to a, fake out the computer and of course you, you can't. Right. And, and that's, I mean, just to kind of circle back, that that is, um, you know, that's a temporal order problem. You know, I've, I've got the order backward. So the idea is that your brain turns uh, your perception of a tenth of a second into zero time. And so less than that must be negative time. Exactly. And, and you know, it's like your brain is like credit grabby. It wants to take credit for stuff that you actively do. You know, you press a button and something happens, you must have caused it. Right. Uh, you, must, you must have caused it. So I'm going to, I'm going to like jam those things together in time uh, and make it seem like it happened at the same time, just to, you know, make things easier for you, conscious person. <laughs> so, so as we're talking about the brain, um, I, you talk about how time is active or gets activated in different parts of the brain. Yeah. So there are, as I I said, sort of all these experiences that go into what we would call our perception of time. And, you know, maybe the most basic one um, are circadian rhythms. And that's the one aspect of time that we're all born with. 
And what that is basically is that in each of our cells, uh, in our organs, we have essentially a clock. It's a clock born out, out of kind of genetic processes going on in the nucleus of the cell, such that it beats out a 24-hour rhythm. And, you know, it's like your liver works on a 24-hour cycle and your kidneys work on a 24-hour cycle, and which means they're, you know, active at some times of the day and less active at another time of the day. And if you just kind of chart that activity, it's a 24-hour cycle. So like, like your facial hair grows faster in the afternoon than it does in the middle of the night, which is why men tend to get 5 o'clock in the afternoon shadow and not five o'clock in the morning shadow, you know, and we've got all these cells, uh, all these clocks kind of floating around in us. And we have a master clock, a, a, a literally a, a cluster of about 20,000 neurons in the brain. Um, and it takes input from daylight and it takes that information and sends it out to all these clocks to basically let them know what time it is um, so that all these clocks can kind of coordinate together. Otherwise, you know, you basically get jet lag. Um, so that's one kind of time. But then there's the kind of time that is, you know, your sense of duration. You know, it's like you're sitting at the stoplight and it seems to be taking longer than it did yesterday. Not that you're sitting there timing it consciously, but somewhere in your brain you, you really seem to be and you seem to sense that there's some kind of violation of, of the timing that you've come to expect. You know, that's another sort of timing. And, and neuroscientists have been trying really hard for the last 20 or 30 years to locate that timer, if you will, in the brain. And it turns out it's not, you know, it's not like a clock like you have in your computer. It's not super local. It's, it's a distributed process across, you know, really most of the neurons in your brain. Um, and even then, it's, it's not exactly clear how that process works, although it's very clear that there is a timer in there. Wow, so um, that's that's pretty wild stuff. The idea that uh, that's not a centralized thing is so different from how we think about the clocks that we look at. That we we think of timepieces of timekeepers as being really pretty simple mechanisms, but it sounds like internally they're not. Uh, they really are not, and and you know it's interesting in in the in the kind of neurobiology literature and the clinical literature. You know, you find all kinds of examples of people who've suffered from a stroke or they've had some kind of brain damage and maybe their sense of time is speeded up or it's slowed down or it's distorted in some way, but you never find anybody who has zero sense of timing, which just indicates that, you know, it, it is a distributed process. You know, it's not, it's not kind of local to one brain region, um, which A, is, is a good thing because A, it's, you know, you don't want to lose that clock. And B, you know, it, it indicates just how critical timing is to the organism. And, I mean, and by the way, you know, it's not like we are the only animal that have this. Dogs, cats, pigeons, pretty much every um, sort of every vertebrate animal, probably every invertebrate animal has some degree of timing. I mean, you can train a dog to expect food after, you know, 30 seconds or 10 minutes and that's because it can time things. And um, I'm thinking now of like the seven-year cicadas or whatever. Some of those uh, time scales are very long. Yeah, that is, that is probably 
that's probably a genetic thing. Mm. Um, it's it's not a it's not a kind of conscious or what you might call like a cerebral or psychological process. Sure. Um, I mean, it's not it's not a learned thing. Whereas you know, with rats and pigeons and dogs, um, you know, they learn what five minutes is. They learn what ten minutes is because they learn that there's a treat waiting. You know at the end of it. And they learn that really fast. So you had mentioned early on about the, uh, you, you were uh, giving us the analogy of, of your kids and the sense of time, you know, hurry up. What, what kind of, what is the time, what is the sense of time that uh, say babies experience or even maybe other animals? How do they experience the passage of time? Well, so we'll talk about babies first because animals generally are kind of a different, a, a different case, but um, I mean, babies are super interesting. I, I spent a lot of time in the lab of a guy named David Lepkowitz, uh, who's a developmental psychologist now at Northeastern University. And, you know, what he basically does is study babies, I mean, like as young as like weeks old up to, you know, 10 or 12 months old. Um, and he, he tries to understand what what time and timing is to them. And one of the cool things he found out is like, you know, with us, with grownups, like if you're watching TV and suddenly like the sound gets out of sync with the movement of the lips, you know, if, if that's off by about 80 seconds, uh, 80 milliseconds, um, you know, less than a tenth of a second, we notice it. But a baby, you can put those things out of sync by as much as two thirds of a second. Um, which is a really long time, and they don't notice it. Hmm. Um, it's they they have a very forgiving, um, they have a very forgiving. It's not so much a sense of time, but it's it's a sense of synchrony, right? It's it's a, it's this process of of the brain trying to figure out what things go together in time, right? I see some lips, I hear a sound. Do those things belong together or not? And uh, the baby's brain is, is, you know, willing to basically be pretty, pretty lax with what counts as now and things belonging together um, than, than the adult brain is. We're going to take a quick break in some measurement of time, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Alan Burdick, author of Why Time Flies. Uh, so you talk about time also as an illusion of permanence uh, and uh, say that sometimes that leads to overlooking long-term consequences. Give us a, an example of this. Illusion of permanence. Did I say that? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a great, no it's a great phrase. I assume we got it from you. Oh, my God. Um I have no idea what that means. Well, as you got to ask me a different question. Sure, yeah, uh, but the the idea the idea that um, what's happening now is going to keep on happening, uh, and that the the idea that the now sort of extends into the future in a way that's maybe not so realistic. Um, well, uh, you, maybe what you're talking about is 
part of, I mean, this gets, this is kind of where the perception of time really kind of turns into a discussion of consciousness. I, I kept trying to steer away from consciousness in the book, but it, it was sort of inevitable. Um, you know, part, part of what makes us adults is our understanding that we have a self, you know, that the person that I was last week or a year or two ago is the same person now, and, and I'm going to be me next week and 50 years from now, even even if circumstances change. But kids don't really have that. I mean, they certainly aren't born into the world with that. And it, it really isn't until, like, age three or four that they begin to understand that the memories that they're having actually belong to them and they don't belong to somebody else. So, you know... So it's possible that you could tell a three-year-old, hey, I went to the uh, to the Empire State Building today, and he or she will receive that and remember that as if he or she had gone to the Empire State Building himself. So, you know, any anything that it remembers, it assumes is a memory that belongs to itself. Um, but only kind of gradually does it begin to parse out, you know, other people's memories from its own memories. And at that point... Once it kind of claims its own memories, the, the child enters what we would call a, a, a state of self, um, and and the understanding that that self is is basically permanent. You know, it will it will span all time. Wow! I'm just taking a moment to to wrap my head around that. Does that um, is is sort of the vestige of that? What can make it? easy sometimes for people, even in adulthood, to remember things that didn't happen uh, or to uh, you know, read about something and feel like it happened to them? Is that is that the same mechanism at work or is that going beyond your field? Yeah, it's a little beyond my field, but it's not unrelated. I mean, it, it is, you know, it, it is part of the mystery of how exactly memory works um, and, you know, the, the degree to which, you know, as, as we know, memory is both fallible and, and can be altered. Um, you know, you, a, a, a trained scientist can basically implant false memories um, in a person about how they, you know, they went to the mall and they saw so-and-so or they bought such-and-such, even though that never actually happened. And, and the person can, can you know, a day later remember it as if that was a memory that they had as a kid. And um, you mentioned about the uh, circadian rhythms, and, and you talked about uh, how they worked in humans. And what about other animals? Uh, it's um, circadian rhythms are they've been around probably as long as life has been around. I mean, there is, I don't think there's really an organism that doesn't obey a circadian rhythm. Um, you know, if you take a certain kind of a flowering plant, you know, that flowers at sunrise and, and closes up at sundown, put it in a closet in the dark for two weeks, and it will continue to, um, it'll continue to bloom as if, you know, it knows exactly when sunrise is and sunset is, not because it turns out it's, it's being triggered by light, but because it has this internal clock. That's interesting because I was thinking about um, stories I've heard of people who went you know, down into caves away from sunlight for weeks or months at a time, um, and their sleep cycles become very distorted. They might, you know, sleep for twenty hours at a time and then um, be awake for you know more than twenty-five. 
So did you did you look into phenomena like that? I and mean, to what extent is this innate? Yeah, well, the, I mean, circadian rhythms have, have been known to exist in animals and plants for yeah, a couple of hundred years. Um, but it wasn't really until like the 1950s or so that they were discovered in humans. And, and that was in part by, you know, experiments just like you described by, you know, sending people to go live in underground bunkers and caves for, you know, two weeks or three weeks at a time and, you know, monitoring their, their body temperature over a 24-hour period and monitoring their sleep cycles. And it became clear that, you know, even removed from the presence of daylight or even from each other, you know, that, that people, you know, pick out a, a circadian rhythm, certainly as, as expressed in um, body temperature. That's probably the best indicator of where you add in your where you're at in your daily circadian cycle but um but yeah i mean i i i uh, spend some time in the book writing about this french cave explorer um who in the 60s put himself in a cave um for for a period of weeks just to kind of see what would happen to him uh and he did it again in the 70s in a cave in uh in texas and stayed down there for almost six months and um he learned a lot about his circadian cycle, but his sleep cycle went totally nuts. Mm-hmm. And he would sleep sometimes, you know, for 40 hours at a stretch um, and other times for 20 hours at a stretch. And, um, no, he, I'm sorry, he, he didn't he didn't sleep for 40 hours, but his, uh, his perceived day between, you know, waking up and the next time he woke up right. took 40 hours. He has no clock, so he has no idea what time it is. And when he came out, um, he actually thought that uh, they were taking him out too early. He hadn't realized how much time had actually passed above ground and was uh, surprised when they came, you know, when when they said it was time to leave. He was also, also pretty happy because he was going nuts down there. <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Wow. <laughs> so, um, so, so this leads us to the idea of time as a, as a social construct, um, that the the passage of time is something that in, in some sense we all have to agree upon. Um, and you know, and in that, in that example, the people coming to get him said, no, your perception of time is wrong. And he said, okay, that's fine. I'll go by what your perception of time is. So how, how does that, how does that work and why has it become so important to, to societies all over the world? Um, I, I think in, I think it's probably always been, important to us, even even in the absence of the kinds of clocks that we, we know now. Um, but, but I mean, it manifests itself both mechanically and, and, and very kind of biologically in, 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 in these sort of two senses. I mean, you know, you have a watch, I have a watch, people around the world that we know have clocks, and, and those clocks, you know, these days all agree with each other because they're all speaking to the same satellites and they're all coordinating. Um, so we are, you know, that enables us to to coordinate our our schedules and say, you know, hey, let's talk at two fifteen, and then I know, you know, what two fifteen means, even if I'm in another time zone. Um, but you know, we we actually do that kind of thing interpersonally all the time through the the perceptions of time that that we manifest. So, like. Um, well, think of it this way: like if, if the two of us are sitting in a room together talking, and you see me smile, the difference between me smiling genuinely and me giving you a fake smile is just a matter of milliseconds. Hmm. 
But your sense of timing is uh, is acute and acute enough to pick up that difference. And if it's not, then you're missing out on some serious social cues. And, you know, studies show that if we're sitting together, you know, if you smile, I'll smile. If you pick up your fork, I'll pick up my fork, too. And and we we synchronize our our gestures um, even without noticing it. So, you know, if if Mark is watching us have a having this conversation, he can basically tell again, not even consciously, he can tell how well we're getting along mm. by by kind of intuiting how kind of synchronized we are in time uh, physically. Um, so, you know, our, our ability again to kind of move in and out of each other's times and, and sort of understand each other's, um, I don't know what the word for it is, but, you know, to, to, to kind of move in and out of each other's bodies almost and, and appreciate each other's sense of time is just integral to the, to the social process. It's, it's really part of what makes us such a successful social species. So you obviously went really far afield from where you started out. You said it took you 10 years um, to put this book together. It's a long time. Um, what was the central idea that you started with and, uh, and how has it sort of transformed throughout this process? Well, I, I guess I kind of started out from kind of an antagonistic <laughs> perspective. Like I didn't want to wear a watch, at, you know, at that time in my life. And I kind of felt like time was this sort of external thing that was being imposed on me and that I had some kind of a choice about whether I did or did not, you know, want it on me or, hmm. you know, want to belong to this thing called time. Um, and, you know, as I... As I, as I dived into the book and sort of talked to all these people and processed all of it, I began to realize that, that time isn't something, you know, it's not something that we really create. Um, to, I mean, we, you know, yes, we have clocks that we've invented, but time is in us. It's, it really is in ourselves. Um, you know, we know where it is and how it works. And it's bubbling up out of us all the time. I mean, you know, if, if you're, each of your cells is a clock, that clock has to talk to the other clocks. And you as a whole, I as a whole, I am an assemblage of clocks. I'm like a symphony. And, you know, the two of us together, the three of us, uh, us in a crowd, we, we are all then kind of clocks trying to synchronize with one another. Um, so I just began to see that it's, A, it's not something you, you can escape, B, it's really something to embrace. Um, and I guess I, it, it all made it a little bit easier to deal with, you know, the other inescapable fact of time, which is that it moves in one direction, you know, that it moves in one direction and eventually comes to an end. <laughs> Your previous book was Out of Eden, An Odyssey of Ecological Invasion. Um, tell us a little bit about that. And did that book at all have any bearing on this one? Yeah, that was a book... Um, it was about invasive species, different kinds of plants and insects and animals uh, that are, you know, not native to the ecosystem that they're moving into and, and what happens uh, as a result. And, and so it got me, you know, thinking about ecosystems and ecology and evolution and, and, and these timescales over which ecosystems form, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, millions of years 
and I just, you know, it, it just made me realize the extent to which, you know, those times, those time scales are so hard to wrap your head around in part because we are viewing them as humans through like an 80 or a 90 year window that is our lifespan. So, you know, it, it, it's just, it's really hard to conceive how evolution works if, if you can't really grasp the time scale. Um, and so that is part of what got me thinking about, you know, a the perception of time and, you know, how time kind of works in different systems, you know, ecosystems down to individuals. And again, like what, you know, I'd read about space time, but it never really seemed like that had very much to do with the world that we live in day to day. And, and that seemed to involve a different kind of time. And I, and I wanted to know what is that and where does that come from and how does that work? And, you know, what do we know about it? And previously you were an editor at The New Yorker. Now you're a staff writer there. How has your work as an editor shaped your writing? Um, I, it's, <laughs> um, you know, in some ways for me, like editing is like doing a crossword puzzle. Um, it, it's, it's, it's easier than dealing with my own writing. And, and, you know, and, and, and when I write, I really have to turn the editor off. Mm. Um, uh, but for me, editing is like solving a puzzle. And I know that, you know, there are probably three or four different ways to solve it. Um, but you know, I, I have faith that I can, I can kind of figure out a reasonable order for things to go. When I'm writing, it's totally different. It's like you're, instead of, you know, putting the jigsaw puzzle together, it's like you're making the pieces and you're like snipping out, you know, their, their shapes. And, and you don't even necessarily know like what this puzzle is adding up to. All you kind of know is, you know, piece to piece to piece and, and just kind of wondering like, does this stick to this thing? Um, and it's really a long time before my, you know, editing brain can can really have anything to do with that process but i i can uh i can hear as we've been talking your commitment to precision how so well uh just you yeah i love how carefully you've been choosing your words through the interview to make sure that you're conveying what you want to convey and that uh, to me that feels like sort of an overlap between the editor self and the writer self yeah i mean i think you know i think uh, you, you can't kind of go into this business as a editor or a writer or, you know, in, into the book world without at some level caring about the words. I mean, I love, I love information and, um, you know, I, I, I've sort of always thought of myself as a nonfiction writer. I just, but the fiction brain is so foreign to me. I, it's, it's magic. Mm -hmm. I don't know how people do it. Um, I, I need nonfiction to hang on to. Um, but I also just love the craft of it, you know, and and moving sentence to sentence and rhythm of sentences together and um, all of that. I, I just I love that process. We've been talking with Alan Burdick and you can find his book, Why Time Flies in Stores right now for our perception of now. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks so much. I'm Joanna Schaffhausen. I'm the author of The Vanishing Season, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. 
And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Ed Young on the line. His new book is I Contain Multitudes, The Microbes Within Us and a Grander View of Life. Hi, Ed. I'm so glad you could join us. Hi, Rose. Glad to be here. So let's talk about these microbes. I think we all sort of are aware that we've got a lot of little organisms living inside us, but uh, come on, blow our minds with this. How, how, many, <laughs> how many are there? What are they doing? Okay, so in the average human body, there are around 37 trillion bacteria and other microbes, which is roughly one for each one of our own human cells. So um, at most, I am just half the person who I think I am. Um, and these microbes are not just um, passengers or hitchhikers. They are really crucial parts of our lives. They help us to digest our food. They protect us from disease. They help to build and calibrate our immune systems. They shape and sculpt our organs. It's possible they might even influence our behavior. They touch every aspect of our biology. Um, and my contention with the book is that we cannot really understand our lives or those of the entire animal kingdom if we don't also understand our partnerships with microbes. Because it turns out that, that our lives are built in partnership, in negotiation with these tiny hidden organisms that live in us and on us. So now that we, uh, we know we're only half who we think we are, uh, tell, us how, tell us how these microbes do form the other half. Uh, so in all sorts of ways, um, as I said, they, they sculpt and shape our organs. So they, if you look at, um, animals that have no microbes that are raised in sterile environments, um, they have all sorts of problems. Their, their bones, their blood vessels, uh, their guts, their immune systems, all of these develop um, in poor shape. And that's because we rely on microbial signals to stimulate the growth of different parts of our body and to help them mature into their, their adult form. We know that microbes help to calibrate the immune system. They, they build different parts of uh, different groups of immune cells and then um, calibrate them so that they are responsive to infections, but also not overreactive. So they don't go berserk at um, benign things in the world around us like pollen or dust. Um, and we know, we're starting to realize that, um, that the microbes in the human body um, are deeply involved in a range of health conditions, everything from um, obesity and malnutrition to diabetes to inflammatory bowel disease. So many of these um, uh, health problems that we think of as just the province of individuals um, have this microbial influence too. And um, if we go beyond us to, to look at the broader animal kingdom, some of the, the uh, dependencies that animals have on microbes go even further. We have um, squid that have glowing bacteria inside their bodies that camouflage them from predators by cancelling out their silhouettes. We have um, deep sea animals, worms and shellfish that have no mouths or guts. They rely entirely on the microbes in their body to provide them with energy. And even familiar creatures like cows or goats or sheep get something like 70% of their energy from the microbes in them, which help them to digest the otherwise indigestible fibers in the plants that they eat. So everywhere we see that the entire animal kingdom, all of our lives, everything, that all the biology that we're familiar with in zoos or natural history programs, all of that is built on this microbial foundation. 
So um, germ theory was revolutionary, like the whole concept of there being these tiny little organisms that we couldn't see. Uh, and then, uh, sort of the first thing we did was to attack them, was to see them as bad things to, that were causing us harm. And, uh, we had the whole antibiotic revolution, which has saved countless lives, but it sounds like we maybe went a little too far. Mm, yeah, I, I think so. Um, both, both practically and culturally. I mean, cu- culturally, we come to, we've come to associate microbes, um, uh, with death, disease, um, dirt. They are things that we want to get rid of. Their presence is a sign of filth or, or imminent, um, pl- imminent pestilence. But that's not true. The vast majority of microbes are either benign or beneficial to us. And by by being a bit too gung ho in our attempts to remove them from our lives, from our bodies, via antibiotics, from our um, surroundings, with antibacterial everything's, um, we have we might be setting ourselves up for for problems. Now, obviously, as you say, antibiotics have been an enormous health good, but I think our over reliance on on sanitation, on on cleaning everything to um, to within an inch of of its life. Means that we are, we lack exposure to the microbes that, um, that were once thriving parts of our bodies. So, um, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that without that exposure at an early age, our immune systems grow up unprepared to, to face the outside world. They are, they become twitchy. Um, they, they start uh, reacting far too vigorously to benign things in the world around them and even to our own microbes. And maybe that's why we are seeing such large spikes in the incidence of inflammatory diseases and autoimmune diseases and allergies um, in the Western world over the last several decades. Um, so I think that's that's just one sign of how much we depend on microbes in order to to um, shape our health and to uh, and to protect us from illness rather than just causing it. I know that uh, Americans are, are obsessed. You were you were just talking about this with the antibacterial wipes and 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 the uh, gels. Uh, I don't know if this is the same thing in in the UK and throughout Europe, but but uh, these were you were saying that we we limit our defenses. Is this something that that we do just daily, or is this something that will affect mostly our kids who we've had grow up without squeaky clean environments, or is this some sort of evolutionary thing? Uh, well, that's a really good question. So. Um, a bit of everything. Um, it seems that um, exposures in, at a very early point in life are important because that's when um, the immune system is starting to develop and starting to set itself. Um, and you know, we we see in extreme cases, like um, in cases of uh, like malnourishment, for example, in in the developing world, that um, kids whose microbes don't, whose microbial communities don't mature at the the right age, who end up with a microbiological age that's less than a biological one have immune problems. They have problems digesting their food. They they end up malnourished. They have kind of they have a lot of different health problems. Um, it, whether whether our um, whether an over reliance on antibacterials and sanitation is affecting our health as adults is hard to say, but. You know, let's think about things ecologically. As I've said, like we we are home to all these microbes. We are we are each of us an ecosystem, just like a rainforest or a, or a coral reef. And if we remove um, 
the if we remove the species that normally live on us, we create vacancies, we create openings that potentially more dangerous species, those that do cause disease, could take up and fill. Um, and evolutionarily, that's that's one of the big questions. We know that the diversity of microbes in the human body seems to have um, shrunk over time. So apes like gorillas and chimpanzees have more microbes, a wider range of microbes in them than, say, hunter-gatherers, who have more microbes than people who live in rural communities, who have more than people who live in urban communities. So there's been this winnowing over time. And I think the big question now is whether that is a problem or not. So some people would say that it is, that we are losing some of these old friends who do us good. Others would say that we have compensated for their loss in different ways. It's just like, you know, we more people are, are short-sighted now than they used to, but then we have glasses and contact lenses, so it's not much of a problem. So it, it's 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 still a line of active research. What what that narrowing means for our health, and and um, what we might be able to do about it. But I think the really important thing for us to bear in mind just right now is is that microbes aren't our enemies. You know, they're they're not necessarily our friends either, but they are just an important part of the world around us. And if we just try and destroy them because we see them as villains, we might be setting ourselves up for a fall. You had mentioned earlier uh, about the, the you know the role might you know bacteria might play uh, might influence an organism's propensity, say for obesity, but or even in in autism. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I know we were just talking about the the, the good roles that they could play, but what about this? So um, with with obesity, for example, there have been many studies showing that uh, obese and lean individuals, whether humans or lab mice, whatever, have different communities of bacteria in their guts. Now, that doesn't mean that those communities are causing, um, you know, are making us fat or whether it's the other way around. But there have certainly been studies where you've taken, scientists have taken the microbiomes of um fat mice and implanted them into those that lack microbes of their own. And those mice then put on more weight than if you'd, say, implanted them with the microbes from a lean mouse. And that certainly suggests that um, the microbes in our gut can affect the way we process nutrients in our food and, and, how, and how, we, how we transform that into, into body fat. Um, and that makes sense. Now, the extent to which that matters for rising levels of obesity are unclear. What we can do about that is unclear. Um, and the same goes for something like autism. So again, um, there have been illustrative studies done in mice where, you, where scientists have found um, microbes that tamp down the, uh, in the immune system that reduce inflammation. And in some cases, when they've put those microbes into rodents, the rodents have shown reduced levels of symptoms that are similar to those you see in people with autism. So less repetitive behaviors, less, um, more, more, uh, more tendency to sort of explore new things, um, more uh, like a little bit more social boldness. Um, now, there are massive caveats here, of course. Mice are not humans. Mice do not have autism. Autism is a human uh, social construct that's also affected by our views of what is normal. Um, but I think that the critical thing to take away from this is that our microbiome can affect our health. Our microbiome can affect our minds and our behavior. Um, and perhaps manipulating uh, the microbes inside us will allow us to um, influence some 
of um, some of the symptoms that are related to, to poor health. But that's still something that's being looked at at the moment. It's something for the future rather than something we're on the cusp of doing right now. So this is basically the the state of the art right now that you're talking about in this this uh, these studies of just what the microbes do and how they affect us. Um, have there been studies sort of going further than that and and talking about um, how we can make use of them? I know there have been trial products that are like you know spray on bacteria that will be good for your skin and things like that. Um, what what's happening on the on the treatment side? Yeah, a lot of them. A lot of these things are very, very early. So, but like probiotics have been around for a very long time, and although they seem to be very good for infectious diarrhea, they are rather underwhelming for most other conditions. Um, and certainly, regulatory agencies have taken a dim view of a lot of the health claims that surround these products. There's another treatment um, which is a little gross and certainly very unorthodox. Um, it's called a fecal transplant, which is exactly what it sounds like. So you take stool from a healthy donor and implant it into a sick donor in order to solve medical problems. And the, the specific problem that this has been used for and very successfully is infection with a microbe called C. diff, Clostridium difficile. It's a very, it's a very weedy type of bacterium that can cause um, severe recurrence Occurring and often fatal bouts of diarrhea. Um, and C. diff, uh, fecal transplants have been amazingly successful at curing C. diff. Um, in one clinical trial, uh, standard antibiotics cured something like 27% of patients, whereas fecal transplants cured like 94%. That being said, it's then, it's, you know, based on that success, it's been tested on a lot of other conditions like inflammatory bowel disease or diabetes or whatnot, but with much more inconsistent results and lower success rates. So even when you take an entire community of microbes from one person and shove it into another, it's hard to, to reset that ecosystem. In principle, it's a bit like trying to re-turf a lawn that's been overgrown with dandelions and, and you, know, you get this lovely fresh uh, field of grass. But doing that in practice is very difficult. We need to understand um, you know, how these microbes establish themselves. What, what factors allow them to grow in a new environment? How do they interact with each other, with their hosts, with, our, with the native microbes that we already have in, the, in our gut? Um, and these are the big questions that I think will move the study of the microbiome forward and, and advance its use um, to, in, in medicine. But we're, such, we're so much at the early stages of this. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write I Contain Multitudes, to give people a sense of the potential, but also to, to get a, give a very rigorous view of where we stand now and what people should or shouldn't believe about the things that they're reading about this incredibly fascinating and, um, and fashionable area of science. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. 
Welcome back. We're talking with Ed Young, the author of I Contain Multitudes. Um, he's telling us fascinating stuff about microbiomes, the, uh, the microorganisms that live in our bodies. So what are these core takeaways that you want people to have when they, when they read your book, when they think about this very, very early science and where it might go? So I want them to think of um, microbes not as uh, not as villains, not as things they must kill, but as crucial parts of our lives. I want people to realize that if they go to a zoo, um, every creature in that zoo is a zoo in their own right. Um, I want them to understand that when they look in a mirror and see themselves, they're not just looking at an individual, but as an entire community, as as a as an entire world, or even a series series of different worlds. Um, and one of the things I really want to do with the book is to show people just how how wondrous even the most familiar parts of our lives can be if we look at them through this microbial lens. So one really good example, one of my favorite stories from the book involves um, breastfeeding. And breastfeeding is, is a very familiar thing. You know, we've either all done it or taken part in it or seen people do it. But... Um, it's actually very complicated. A breastfeeding mother looks like she's just nourishing a child, but actually about 10% of breast milk consists of these sugars that the baby cannot digest. They are there to nourish microbes in the baby's gut, and specifically one particular strain um, called B. infantis, which has evolved specifically to um, eat these sugars with great efficiency. And in return, it feeds the baby's gut cells. It shores up the lining of the gut to stop it from leaking. It um, quenches inflammation to train the baby's immune system. So what we have um, in, in breastfeeding is that a mother isn't just nourishing her infant, but also infantis. She is building an entire world. She's setting up a world inside her child. And that world is in turn setting up the baby. Um, so it's this wonderful um, symbiosis between human bacterium that's that with milk as the as the the connecting force between them and and I think it's such an interesting way of looking at this thing that we all take for granted um, you talked about antibiotics before and I just want to say what what needs to change in how we use antibiotics uh, factoring both the microbiome and the rise as you said in antibiotic resistant bacteria Mm -hmm. So, um, antibiotics, fortunately, the answer is actually the same for both of those things. Um, mm. the, the answer is that we need to stop overusing them. So we need more judicious use of antibiotics. Um, these, these substances have done so much for us. They have saved countless lives. Um, but they also have collateral damage. An antibiotic is, is an, an unsubtle weapon. It's like more like, it's like a nuke rather than a sniper's bullet. Um, it destroys the bacteria that we rely upon as well as the ones that are doing us harm. Um, so by using them more carefully, um, I'm not saying, uh, you know, let's demonize antibiotics and stop using them altogether. But by using them more carefully, we can avoid um, causing too much harm to our microbiome when we don't need to. And we will also forestall the rise of antibiotic-resistant 
bacteria because it is um, the the um, the wanton use of these drugs is one of the factors that's fueling the rise of microbes um, that can resist almost all of the the things that we throw at them. Um, so you know it's a it's kind of a win win if we use them more carefully we we solve two big problems in one stroke. You just mentioned about this book, but tell us more about how this book came to you. Um, so I have been um, writing about science and about this particular topic for about 10 years. Um, and it's it's one of my favorite things to write about because it does so greatly change um, the way I see the world. And it reveals the world as it truly is, as a, a planet dominated by and ruled by microbes and that we just happen to be living in. And I think it gives, you know, I said in the in the subtitle that it gives us a grander view of life. And, and I truly believe that. I think it, it shows how interconnected we are to the rest of the world around us. Um, and and I think that this area is full of amazing stories. And that's what I wanted to portray in the book. Um, I wanted to tell the stories about the scientists who work in this field. And there's such, uh, there's such a great bunch of characters. You know, there's an Australian scientist who's been trying to load um, a bacterium into mosquitoes to beat diseases like dengue fever for the mm. last, he's been doing that for 25, 30 years. I mean, the amount of dedication it takes to do that. Um, so I tell his story. I tell the story about uh, uh, scientists who have studied these uh, squid with glowing bacteria in them, those who've looked at um, a the aphids that destroy our crops and the bacteria that provide them with nutrients, um, the ones who've looked at obesity and malnutrition uh, among humans, that they are... Um, for first and foremost, the, my, the study of the microbiome is a very human story. There are so many great narratives in this field um, about very intelligent, very passionate, um, very curious and eccentric people. And I wanted to get that across. You let's step into the future for a little bit. You talk about the possibility of artisanal bacteria that could be designed to perform specific tasks. And it sounds like that's what this guy is trying to do with the uh, mosquitoes, for example. Tell us a little bit more about that and about maybe the, the pros and cons of that. So with the mosquitoes, um, what we're doing there is to install a very, very common bacterium called Wolbachia into um, the species of mosquito that spread diseases like dengue and Zika. Um, and the reason we're doing that is that um, Wolbachia stops the mosquitoes from spreading the viruses behind these diseases. And it also happens to be really good at spreading through a wild population. So if you release small numbers of these mosquitoes, the bacterium will spread to those the rest of the wild population and turn the entirety of the entire lot of them into um, into dengue proof or Zika proof insects. Um, so you're not killing any of the insects, you're just stopping them from being agents of disease. You're turning them into dead ends with the viruses. Now, um, the other thing you asked about is, is different. So actually engineering microbes in order to um, solve health problems, that, that is a different thing. And I think something that is being it's in just the very earliest stages of investigation. So some scientists are trying to build microbes that genetically engineered microbes that could, for example, um, detect early signs of cancer and release um, cancer drugs or those that could spot signs of inflammation and calm it down. Um, 
the you know these applications i think will will be really interesting in the future but we're still in the very early stage of being able to manipulate biology to that extent and of course the prospect of doing so makes people very nervous um it should be far less nerve-wracking to actually take naturally occurring bacteria and turn them into probiotics and as i said um, probiotics are, are a little underwhelming but that's because they largely rely on very heavily industrialized and often proprietary strains of microbes that aren't very good at taking up shop in the gut. Um, instead, we may do better by looking at very common species um, that uh, that are much better at colonizing the gut and to give them to people in, in, in bigger numbers. Um, and that's something that a lot of scientists are looking at at the moment. They're trying to construct blends or cocktails of beneficial microbes that could solve conditions like inflammatory bowel disease and so on. Um, but you know, there's there's a lot of potential there, a lot of potential. But the the problem is that we're not just talking about you know the maths of the microbiome are, are very complicated. It's not just about saying here's a problem, I'm going to add this microbe, problem fixed. It this is an act of engineering an ecosystem or shaping an entire world. And a lot of our attempts to do so are very basic and stumbling still. Um, trying to actually, you know, when you give people um, these collections of microbes, it's really hard to predict like whether they'll actually stay in the body, what they will do, how well they will compete against the microbes that are already existing within us. Um, and I think those are the questions that we will need to answer if we're actually going to turn these um, treatments into successful ones. So I have this weird reaction to antibiotics, which is that when I take them, uh, I have mood effects. I get depressed or I get anxious or I, I get mm. panic attacks. Um, and I've been wondering since then about the effects of uh, bacteria of the microbiome on mental health. Mm. Do we have any kind of research in that direction? We do have quite a lot, but most of it, um, as as with many of these things, is uh, is in mice. Um, so we know that um, the microbiome in the gut can affect an animal's behaviour. We everything from its mood to um, its attitude to risk to its resilience to stress to its propensity for anxiety. Um, some of these early studies are very compelling, but a little bit inconsistent. So it's hard to you know it's it's hard to say like whether this microbe increases or decreases anxiety and so on. Um, there are some small preliminary studies suggesting that the same is true for humans, that the microbes in our, in our gut might affect our minds too. Um, but again, it's, it's hard to get precise answers because we're such an early stage in this field. Um, but it, you know, it makes sense. It is totally plausible. We know that um, there is a thing called the gut-brain axis, a line of communication between the gut and the brain. There are nerves that run between those two organs. The immune system can, can um, connect what's happening in the gut to what happens in the brain. Um, bacteria in the gut create neurotransmitters. They create things like do dopamine and serotonin, which are typically thought of as brain signaling chemicals. So th there is plenty of evidence to suggest that microbes could affect our behavior. How they do so is still um, a bit of a mystery, let alone how we might be able to manipulate our behavior by changing the microbes within us. You know, could we, could we affect, could we... Um, 
reduce some of the the um, symptoms of mental health problems like anxiety or depression by giving people um, specially formulated probiotics. Um, there are certainly psychiatrists and scientists who think that the answer is yes. Um, Probably not for really severe cases, but we might be able to do some good for, for milder symptoms. Um, but again, you know, this is a very, very active and emerging area of research. I think, you know, for a lot of people, it would just blow their minds full stop to realize that microbes could affect our minds. Um, the, the details, however, those are what we need to work out. What's your key to making science accessible to the layperson? You've got this book, you've got your blog, Not Exactly Rocket Science. Um, you're talking about some very complicated concepts. So um, when you're sitting down to write, what are you thinking about as, uh, as a translator from scientist to the non-scientist? Well, I try and think about you know, how much I knew about how much I knew when I was doing science at high school. So I, so not, not a huge deal. Um, that's sort of the, the level I'm, um, the level of education that I'm aiming for. But I think the key to, to really good science writing is, um, to never, um, overestimate your reader's knowledge, but to never underestimate their intelligence either. Like science can be complicated, sure, but it's never too complicated that you can't explain it to people, you know, and it shouldn't ever have to be. These are things that affect all of us. And there are things that I think could interest all of us. And, um, and I think all you have to do is treat people with respect, um, you know, uh, and uh, and to convey just how exciting this is, and it genuinely is exciting to me. I think it is, it, it is, um, it is something that truly changes my perspective of myself and the world around me. And I really want to convey that to people who who read the book. Well, I'm certainly getting a sense of your enthusiasm. Is it is it wrong to say that it's infectious? <laughs> I'll, I'll take that. I'm I'm quite happy with puns. We've been talking with Ed Young, and you can find his book "I Contain Multitudes" in stores right now. Ed, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rose. Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another scintillating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this in every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 